recording. Anyway, uh, welcome back to Telescope Talk Pro. As I said, my name is Tony Darnell, and I'm from DeepAstronomy.Space. And today we're going to be talking with people from the Large Millimeter Telescope. And that is an, uh, a, a telescope that is located in Mexico, and it's one that we haven't ever talked about before. So I'm really excited to have people on board my, uh, to, to give us a glimpse into it. It was also one of the telescopes used in the collaboration for the Event Horizon Telescope, which most of you may remember uh, had made a lot of news recently <laughs> with their release of the black hole image in uh, the center of the galaxy M87. So uh, we'll talk briefly about that just a little bit, but mostly we're going to talk about the telescope, the kind of science that's being done there, and uh, what uh, what some of the facilities are like, things like that. So I want to let everybody know that Telescope Talk is is sponsored by OPT Telescopes. They are a world leader in telescopes and accessories for both amateur and professional astronomers. I want to thank them for their support of this Hangout. I am streaming, I hope, <laughs> on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook now, I think I can do. Uh, it says that people are watching on Facebook. Uh, so uh, I'm looking at a at, at the live chat, hopefully, from all of these things. Ahmed Abdullah is on Facebook, as well as Dennis Van Howermeyeren. Did I do that right? <laughs> anyway, they're coming in from Facebook, and that's a new ability that I have because Facebook has recently not played nicely with these restreaming capabilities that I have. So welcome, everybody. Hopefully, uh, you guys will uh, ask us questions on the chat. So, what am I doing here? Let me bring up my guests. Here we go. Uh, joining me, right next to me, over... I knew I'd get it wrong. This way, right there, <laughs> is uh, Nat Denigris. She, is a, uh, she works at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And right down here is David Sanchez from the Large Millimeter Telescope. And David, you are down there right now, aren't you? You are down out on the facility. Yeah, I am right now at the LMT base camp located uh, roughly an hour uh, away from the telescope site. Oh, okay. And and now, for those of you who don't know, a lot of these observatories, I mean, I've been at the one, I've been to a lot of uh, observatories around the world, and they tend to have these facilities where... Uh, where the uh, where the astronomers stay and the housing and all of that kind of stuff is in a slightly different area than where the uh, uh, observing is taking place. So, um, uh, for example, in uh, in Chile and at uh, the at the uh, CTIO there in, in Cerro Tololo, they have uh, a, a a set of apartments there that if you if you sleep during the day, which most astronomers do, they have these heavy duty blinds that come down and close off your entire apartment so you don't even know that it's daylight out do they have that there i mean i can see that you, you know you're in daylight now david but uh do they have those abilities there where you can just shut off all the the windows and stuff yeah we have some kind of special blockout uh curtains that basically uh, allow us to have a dark room during the day ah okay all right well uh, where in mexico is the lmt Okay, probably if you load up the slide uh, three, the LMT slide three location. LMT slide three. Okay, let me go. Oh, they're not in order, darn it. Where are they? Here it is. Ah, there we go. Okay, I've got it up now. So this is basically a, a, a map from Google Maps uh, saying where we are uh, roughly uh, 260 kilometers away from Mexico City, towards the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, we are uh, the base camp is located in a in a town called Ciudad Sardan, which is the largest uh, let's call it city in, in the area, and the telescope is located at the top of uh, Volcan Sierra Negra, or which is translated to to dark, uh, the dark uh, volcano or the, or the black volcano. And uh, if you bring up um, the slide number two, uh, no, slide number three, four, sorry. Sorry, number four? Okay, four. Yeah. it's up now. So you will see that we are next to the, the tallest uh, volcano or mountain in Mexico, which is Pico de Arizaba. Uh, actually, this is the third largest mountain in all North America. 
and just uh, towards your right, you will see uh, a small like uh, cuspid thing in, uh, on the top of the volcan Sierra Negra. That's the LMT seen from Cholula, roughly 150 kilometers away from from the site. So LMT is on Volcan Sierra Negra, then. Yeah. Okay, and that's at fifteen thousand feet, forty six hundred meters, and wow, Pico de Orizaba is huge. Look at that, eighteen thousand feet. Uh, yeah. Wow. I grew up in Colorado, and we have a bunch of fourteen thousand foot mountains that people like to climb. I only climbed one, but uh, that that's <laughs> that's short compared to both of these. So that's pretty amazing. Um, so this is where it's located. Is there anything specific about this location uh, that was necessary for the kind of science that it does? Well, you usually want to have your telescope, particularly submillimeter uh, and millimeter telescopes. You want to have them as high as possible and on places that are as dry as possible. Okay. That's because for us, the atmosphere is not totally transparent as is in radio waves or in optical astronomy. So it's partially transparent. Okay, great. So I'm going to go into this a little bit. The large millimeter telescope, what is the wavelength range here? We are observing between 815 microns and 4 millimeters. And 4, so what? And four millimeters? Yeah, that's the highest energy of the microwave. So 815 microns, that's the infrared, isn't it? Uh, it's far infrared. Far, far infrared, infrared, right. Yeah. And so you can, which explains why you need to get high in the atmosphere to get rid of the water vapor. But I didn't know that it was, that the atmosphere got in the way of radio waves at this wavelength. So apparently it does. Yeah, this is... Um... This uh, atmospheric window we have is uh, slightly different from the radio uh, window. We have uh, lower frequencies like the, I don't know, the Wi-Fi or the BLA window, which is roughly around a few gigahertz. We're operating at hundreds of gigahertz. So we are, uh, in some way, we're far away of, of the, radio, uh, the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum. You're far away from it, you say? Yeah. Okay, I always have a hard time going back and forth between gigahertz and wavelength. Yeah. I know you can do it by multiplying yeah, by, and dividing by, by C yeah. and, and getting all that. So, uh, for example, usually VLA, the most famous uh, wavelength is 21 centimeters. Right. Which is and, the and, of the neutral hydrogen. And for us, it's basically uh, 100 times... Uh, uh, larger wavelength compared okay. to the observations we're doing. Okay. So it's a slightly different regime. Our telescope look very similar to a radio telescope, but it's uh, built in a way that is uh, efficient to, to capture this one millimeter wavelength uh, radi radiation. One, it's, so it's best at about about a millimeter, you said. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's the best around one millimeter. Okay, so just so that I can see how this fits in with the picture of all the other telescopes, Alma is a millimeter. Okay, that makes sense. It's in the name, millimeter and sub-millimeter band telescope, right? So they look at things smaller than one millimeter as well, which allows it to see things like gas and dust and other uh, and other kinds of. Uh, materials that you can't see in optical wavelengths, correct? Or at least it lets you see through these materials because that's what allowed people to see black holes at the center of our galaxy as well as uh, M87. So these are important wavelengths, but they don't overlap, do they? What you do at the large millimeter telescope is not the same as what they do at ALMA. They, there's not overlapping wavelengths, are there? Yeah, we have an overlapping wavelengths. Uh, ALMA basically the Band six and seven, if I recall correctly, correspond to a few millimeters. So we have uh, some sort of overlap uh, on the on the wavelengths we are observing with Alma, and that's basically uh, that's why we can combine Alma and LMT baselines for the EHT uh, observations to provide an image of uh, of the shadow of a black hole. Okay. Just because we have that overlap, we both observe at the same time at the same frequency. Okay, uh, and what are you looking at now uh, while you're down there? 
Well, last night we were uh, testing a new receiver we received uh, last year. It's called Sequoia. It's an spectrometer that can both produce images and uh, produce a spectra of uh, molecular lines in, in uh, galactic uh, star formation regions. Uh, its name is uh, it's Sequoia. It's operating at a three millimeter wavelength. At three, at three meters, you said? Yeah, okay. three millimeter. Wave. Three millimeters. Uh, yeah, okay, right. Three millimeter atmospherical window. Okay, and so, so you're you're interested in star formation then? Yeah, yeah. We, we with Sequoia we uh, trace the molecules that are in the interstellar medium and that are associated with the star formation regions. Okay, all right. Um, Okay, well, Natalie, let me get you in on this a little bit. Nat, Nat Denigris, uh, what are you doing uh, as part of the team, and what sort of uh, what kind of astronomy are you interested in? Uh, so I do something a little different. Um, my background is in engineering, and so I do astronomy instrumentation. So I'm working on a new facility instrument for the LMT called Toltec. And it is going to be a follow-up to a previous camera there called Aztec, I see a theme going on here. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of camera is Toltec? Uh, Toltec is going to be a millimeter wavelength camera, but it will be able to image in three separate wavelengths um, and also do two polarizations simultaneously. So we have three focal planes of detectors all on one optics bench. Three, po three focal length. Hang on. Three. Say that again. Three focal length detectors on one. Three focal planes of detectors. So if you pull up the uh, picture called cold optics, I think that kind of gives a better overview of what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm just looking for it now. Um, cold optics. Not, oh, there it is. Okay, I got it up. Okay, let awesome. me get let me get it up. There we go. Cold optics is up. So yeah, this is what you're building. Yeah. So this is the inside of Toltec. Um, there are four different uh, temperatures that we were working with, but this is just showing the third coldest stage, which hosts the different optics we're looking at. So what you see um, are different mirrors, uh, things called dichroic splitters actually take the light and split it off into different frequencies and wavelengths. And so we have a 1.1 millimeter band, we have a 1.4 millimeter band, and a two millimeter band. Um, and so we'll be able to capture information from the sky in all three of these wavelengths at the same time. And they will all appear on the focal plane at once. And the advantage, the advantage of that is so that you can get simultaneous observations and wavelengths all in the same data, data set, right? Exactly. And it's actually going to be great for removing systematics from different observations. So say you're looking at the, like a galaxy cluster, um, there's a certain effect where uh, the cosmic microwave background will go through the galaxy cluster, and this is called the Sinai-Zeldovich effect, and it heats up the cosmic microwave background you see, but in the three wavelengths we'll be able to image with Toltec, you can separate out these um, where it's heating up. And so you kind of can remove effects from atmosphere, you can remove effects from um, just background noise from this effect on the sky. So it's going to be really great for uh, millimeter wave like astronomy in that way. Okay. Well, let me help me understand the data then that come out of these uh, these telescopes because yeah. whenever I hear uh, about radio telescopes, it's usually a time series of frequencies mm. that come out and it's not an image, although they do build images from the data, but what you get from the telescope isn't an image like ALMA can make an image, right? Mm -hmm. But but you have to combine all these radio signals together in a way that, and then convert the data into something that resembles an image. Is that what's going on here with the LMT and in particular with Toltec, or is it something, something like what I just, something different? Like, are you actually getting an image? So we're going to be taking um, time streams. So the detectors we're using are unique. They're a newer form of um, detector called a lumped element kinetic inductance detector. And let's say just, that slower. A one, a what? 
a lumped element kinetic inductance detector or lovingly called liquids. <laughs> okay. Lump element. <laughs> <laughs> a lump element I, I, I okay I'll keep going then <laughs> so um the kids uh have taught us a lot about patient parenting um but they are if you took an intro physics class you might remember an inductor and a capacitor in a circuit it's basically that except the thing that's absorbing the light is your inductor and these circuits have a characteristic frequency that they respond to. So if you send in an electronic signal at that frequency, you can detect a drop in power from our readouts. So if we do that for 4,000 detectors on one focal plane, um, what we're getting out from a time series is uh, light is absorbed by that inductor it changes the property of the inductor, so its characteristic frequency changes. But since we're only sending in an electronic signal at the original frequency, you end up uh, reading out a time series of just fluctuations at that one point in time. And then you can back that out to figure out a map for each one of the detectors looking at the sky. Um, and so we're kind of getting images from that rather than just taking a picture like you do on your cell phone. Okay. Well, how did you get into this? How did you get into the, in, have you always been more interested in engineering than say science or did this, or, I don't know about you, but my career went like this and I'll just say it very briefly. I started, uh, as I wanting to be an astronomer, a PhD astronomer, but I didn't want to go to grad school. I got a physics degree, uh, a bachelor's degree in physics. And then I graduated, had, I had a young family. So I said, graduate students are, I can't mm -hmm. be that right now. So I went into programming and I learned how I got computer programming and learned from there that I really enjoyed writing code to process data, process, mm -hmm. you know, get reading cameras and uh, reading camera data and things like that. But I never, I never planned on doing that. It, it, tell us a little bit about how you got where you are. Was it, was it something you always knew or did you kind of, I don't know, follow a yellow brick road until you just sort of ended up there? <laughs> Definitely the latter. Um, I think my parents are watching, but they're both artists. And so I started in art myself in my freshman year of college. Oh, you started uh, out in art. That's great. Yep. And I accidentally took a physics class. Oh, yeah. Well, how do you do that? How do you act? Oops. Oops. I took um, a physics my class. My friend signed me up for the class without telling me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, what am I doing in here? What is this? <laughs> it was just like, just show up at this time and place. Um, but the very first day of class, the professor did that experiment showing that a penny and a feather can fall at the same rate in a vacuum tube. And I was just like, wow. Oh, yeah. How yeah. can you explain all of that with math? And so I, I ended up doing physics for my undergrad and psychology on the side because I couldn't decide for a while. And um, in the process, I ended up doing an internship at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, there, and I still do this work now uh, as a Pathways intern, I build detectors for X-ray space telescopes. And that was the first time I realized that, wow, I'm, I really enjoy building things. And I kind of want to keep doing this for observational astronomers. And so I kind of ended up there. My boss at Goddard uh, was roommates with the person I ended up doing my um, first year project with here at UMass. And so I've continued to work on Toltec as my project and I really enjoy building things. <laughs> now I've always told people, I get, sometimes I give advice to people who mm -hmm. want to start out their careers and you guys can both tell me what you think of this, but I've always okay. said that if you can build things or program things, that there will always be jobs for you in astronomy because mm -hmm. it, I mean, there's no shortage of people of, of astronomers out there making models and making predictions. What we need are people who can build a telescope or put together a camera like you're doing that or, you know, program it to to process the data and, or take the images. Uh, so I've always said that is a growth industry in astronomy. Would you guys agree with that statement? Yeah, Dave? actually, my background is... I came for from computer science. My, my my major is in computer science, and then 
I decided basically to to go back to, to astronomy, just uh, having all the knowledge of programming code and building tools to analyze data and then uh, put it into work for the for the telescopes here, in particular the LMT. And much of my PhD thesis is developing this kind of codes to analyze the the data of cameras like Nadi's building, just to produce images that are more accurate to the real emission of astronomical objects. So David, it sounds like you took a path similar to mine. You came at this from a programming perspective and decided that you could write code to, to process and analyze these data. Uh, and am I right? Is that what you just said? That, that, that sort of how you got, and now you're, you're doing research astronomy. So how did you make yeah. that leap? How did you go from being a software computer science software person to getting involved in the LMT and now doing observations? Well, uh, when I finished my, my bachelor degree, I realized that the being at an office, just working in regular office hours was not for me. So I came back to my passion as a kid, which was astronomy. I had a lot, plenty of books of the stars, the planets. The it, always, it always comes back to that. It yeah, I, 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 I was an astronomy geek <laughs> when I was a child. So, uh, and it happened that the LMT was, uh, the, was being built at that time. So I learned about the LMT and I said, you know, I want to work there and just, uh, moved to, to the National Institute of Astrophysics and started studying there, uh, learned general, general relativity and quantum mechanics just to be able to model the data we were working. Uh, and that's basically my motivation. I, I wanted to be an astronomer uh, since I was a kid. So I, and, and this telescope is located in Mexico and, and I do a lot of hangouts about a lot of observatories around the world. And I'm not familiar with all that many telescopes in Mexico. How many other facilities are there that you guys know of uh, that are in that country? And is Mexico a good spot to do astronomy? Well, we have a few other small uh, optical telescopes. Uh, particularly the National Institute of Astrophysics, which is the the, the institute that is uh, involved in the LMT project, has another telescope in the northern part of Mexico, but it's a small two-meter telescope. It's called uh, the Guillermo Aro Observatory. Um, people from the National University of Mexico, or UNAM, they have uh, a few telescopes in the in the Baja Peninsula. Uh, I think those are also two and four meter telescopes. Okay, now as you're describing this, I'm going, I'm playing this uh, movie that you sent me, uh, I believe it was Nat, the one, uh, GTM Construction. Uh, yeah, so. I'm just I'm just showing that now as, as it goes. Uh, I, I guess I never really thought about it, but to me it seems like Mexico would be a pretty good site, especially if you've got some high mountains. Now, Chile, unfortunately, has you guys beat as far as the best, the driest desert mm -hmm. in the world uh, in Atacama, but uh, there's probably some really good sites in, throughout Mexico where you could locate a, a decent uh, observatory. So um, so this is one. So this is the, and, and, you're, and you're saying this is probably the largest in Mexico then? Is that right? Yeah, well, the LMT is probably one of the most largest scientific projects in Mexico. It's just a huge endeavor for, for, for ourselves. And what's the feeling in the country? Is this something that you feel like more people want to get involved in? Uh, is, there a, is there an interest in the country for doing more of this? Uh, well, you know, it's kind of... Uh, uh, I think that right now that we got these results from the EHT that plays an important role into motivating people to come to uh, begin observations or try to get an astronomy or an IT degree uh, involved into, into astronomy. So I think uh, we're getting there. Uh, we haven't got the best publicity around Mexico, so that's that's a down on us, but I think it's changing. I think 
right now people is realizing that doing this kind of projects in Mexico is it's possible. Okay. Let me uh, I'm getting some questions here. Let me let me scroll back up on some of the YouTube questions so I can get to the beginning. Uh Adam Synergy wants to know um uh, hi Adam by the way. I haven't seen you in a while. It's good to have you back. Um at such high elevation is snow and ice build up on the dish a problem? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. It is but uh usually through uh October through May we have a few snowstorms. Uh, uh, fortunately, uh, the temperature at the side usually variates between uh, a few degrees above zero, uh, zero degrees Celsius and below zero degrees Celsius. So we are able to melt uh, during the day all the ice and, and the snow that builds up into the dish. Okay. And uh, I don't understand this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Hans Milling is asking, are all radio telescopes single aperture to not distort the radio waves? Do you Could you say again the last part? Uh, are all radio telescopes single aperture to not distort the radio waves? I don't. I guess I'm thinking mo a lot of radio telescopes are multi-aperture. I mean, the VLT is... Uh, I mean, the VLA in New Mexico is a good example. So they put those together with interferometry. Mm -hmm. So uh, do, I mean, I don't, I, I think that um, they don't distort the radio waves, do they? Do single aperture telescopes distort the radio waves? Well, we can. I mean, uh, if you have multiple aperture telescopes, you need to, to basically store those radio waves in some way through probably some uh, kind of detector, and then you correlate those and look for the lead late times in the information from astronomical objects to build uh, an image or a spectrum of the object you are looking at. So uh, I think all, all the, the radio and millimeter wavelength telescopes, we store in some way the a representation of the of the light we're receiving from from outside the, the planet. Okay. Yeah, and following along those lines, I mean, because of the nature of radio tels telescope data, maybe he's talking about things like diffraction. I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but uh, you know, diffraction of these radio waves uh, isn't as big a deal as I understand it as it would be in the optical wavelengths. So building building larger apertures are more it's more convenient or easier to do with uh, with radio telescopes than not uh which brings me to the eht uh you guys were a member of the eht co collaboration right yeah I, what were you did you just provide so tell us how that worked i mean we know that that what they they used interferometry to gather the light from all of the different radio telescopes that, that were in the collaboration from around the world one of them being mexico one of them being your telescope did you have to precisely coordinate your observations with everybody else's how did that yeah. work so basically uh you, you need to build up and scale of the objects you are going to observe and coordinate among all the sites among all over the world to be observing at the same time the same object. Moreover, you need to, when you store your data, when you store the, the, the millimeter wavelength emission, you need to tag it precisely with a timestamp. So later you can recombine it with the data of other telescopes. And that was the key, right? That timestamp couldn't just be something you read from a clock or what your computer did. It had to be like atomic clock good, right? Isn't that, am I, yeah. Do I understand that right? I mean, you needed to do it to like a, a kajillion decimal places uh, because when all of that data came together, if you just add it all up, then you just get, you know, more signal and, and your noise adds up. But to get the resolution required from long baseline interferometry, those timestamps needed to be matched. So you said, okay, here's what, here's what Chile took. Here's what the LMT took. And if you, you add and you process them somehow in parallel, you don't add them, you collect them as if you match up their timestamps. And then you get two signals from two, two different parts of the world 
that add up in a way that the resolution is higher. And that's about all I can say about that. Uh, oh, <laughs> I may have just screwed that whole thing up. That's, that's a, a good picture, yeah. So basically what you do with interferometry is you, you are looking to the time delay of, of, of the light as it uh, gets detected by different telescopes. So you want, if you want to do an image, you have to be really, really precise on this time length that took uh, from, let's say, from Chile to, Mex to Mexico for that same wavefront to arrive. So ba basically, uh, if you are able to use, we're, we're using an hydrogen maser as a, as a plug source. And, and GPS uh, uh, coordinates to also have the exact location or within a, a few centimeters, the exact location of all the telescopes. Yeah. When you have the exact location at, the, at this precise time stamping, then you can locate for these small amounts of delays between telescopes. And in those delays is where you can basically reconstruct an image with a higher angular resolution that the individual telescope by themselves. Yeah, I'm still having trouble visualizing how that works, but over time, as I talk to more people like you guys, I slowly get it. Uh, interferometry can also be used to cancel out light. Like if you're looking for exoplanets, you can use it to cancel out the light from a star to see the planet better. But uh, in this case, the way I always look at it is that if you imagine a big mirror, just a regular reflecting spherical mirror, and every point on that mirror contributes to its resolution capability because it's a function of its size, then you can think of this, this telescope, the EHT, as every location around the world is a spot on a mirror bringing in a data signal. And because of the way resolution works, it's the wavelength is a function of the wavelength and the diameter, then you uh, get, as you say, you put it together in a certain way that you keep the resolution capabilities intact while still getting the signal. It's if you don't picture that folks don't feel bad. I don't either. I'm still struggling with it, but that is in, in, in very simple terms, how the EHT worked and uh, radio telescopes, they do this all the time just because I guess the wavelengths are, are more conducive to this kind of thing. I don't hear, there are some interferometry being done with optical telescopes, specifically at ESO, and uh, I think it's Paranol. They have the unit telescopes there, but mostly it's usually it's done with radio telescopes that I always hear about. Yeah, and it is easier to do it in, in the radio telescopes than uh, you have to do optical interferometry. Basically, you actually have to interfere two different uh, wavefronts of light uh, at the same time. Where with radio uh, interferometry, basically, you can start the, your data, send it to uh, the US or to Germany, and then analyze it. You don't need to have this instantaneous ability to do the interferometry patterns as optical telescope does. Okay, well, let me go ahead and ask Hans Milling, Hans Milling's second question. He's uh, asking, dichroic filters are used to filter light, but when you call the telescopes radio telescopes, is it still light you observe? When people say radio telescopes, I think of AM, FM radio waves. So do you still think of this as light? It is light. It's just yeah, like, all so from the radio waves all the way up to X-rays. That's all types of photons. So it's all still light, even if we usually think about our car radio. We're receiving photons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there are brightnesses, brightness levels. Things are. If you look at say a nebula in radio, that's this may not be the best example, but let's say a nebula is emitting radio waves, and then then certain parts of it might be brighter than others uh, over over the span of the nebula. So you would see stronger radio signals and you'd see fainter radio signals. And when you put all that together, you get a radio picture of the nebula. I wish I hadn't used nebula, but it's all I can think of right now. They don't really generate a lot of radio waves, but uh, stars and, and black holes and, and uh, galaxies and neutron stars, all these things do emit, but, and these are generally point sources, but, uh, you can, if you looked at an extended object in radio waves, and if it was emitting in radio waves, you would see a radio picture. 
you know, you'd have to convert it into brightness like this. This one, let's say you looked at it in one millimeter. Our eyes don't see one millimeter, but you see, uh, you get different brightness levels from your detector, like the one, like Toltec, for example, the camera you're building, uh, would show various levels of brightnesses in the wavelengths that it's looking at and construct a picture, wouldn't it, from the detector? Right. So you've got you've got a detector that's sensitive to the wavelength you're looking at. By the way, what's it made of? What 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 detector are you using? I thought you'd never ask. Huh? <laughs> um, you thought I'd never ask. <laughs> Do you have you have pictures too, don't you? Science. It's amazing. Uh so these are a a trimetallic sandwich of superconducting metal. Trimetallic so, sandwich of superconducting metal. That sounds like a yeah, rap song. That's awesome. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a band with my collaborators. So. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Well, you do it all. You do it all, Nat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm showing something called detector assembly. Is that yes. what you're working on? Um, so these are made by our collaborators at NIST. And so they've made the liquid array that you see in the bottom um, and then the feed horns that guide the light to the array. But if you look in the lower right-hand corner, you'll see a little picture of what is a single pixel. Okay, on... hang on. Let me make sure I've got the right one. I'm showing detector assembly. That's not yeah. it. Is that, I is... think so. In the lower right-hand, there's nothing there. Okay. Uh, so how about... Is it NIST slide? Uh, is it that one? Oh, if you look at detectors, yeah. Oh, detectors. Okay, there it is. Got it. It's up. That's what I had up yeah. at first. Okay. okay. So if you look in the little lower right-hand corner, um, I think that's a detector assembly that you have up right now. But um, there should be a picture of the uh, detector, like, so um, a single pixel on the focal plane is made up of two detectors, and it looks kind of like a plus sign with two big rectangles next to it. So that little plus sign is actually where we absorb the light. Okay. I don't – we're still looking at detectors.png, right? Yeah. Okay. And the plus sign is where? Uh, so if you look um, – Maybe it's on my right, your left, but so uh, right next to where it says uh, liquid array, there should be a little box that shows um, transmission a line of a detector. Yeah, and that's called transmission line, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that, so oh, that plus sign. Okay, I see. Yeah. So that little okay. tiny plus sign is actually our detector element. It absorbs the light uh, from the sky. At at what wavelength again? Uh, this is for the 1.1 millimeter, but we have the 1.4 and 2 millimeter. So there bands. you go. That that little plus sign is a radio pixel, isn't it? Yep. There you go, Hans. Check that out. So you and if and and if you array these pixels like you've done in in that thing on the is it on the left? Is that what it is? Yeah. So. Yeah, so. The the middle one shows a full array. Okay, so that's the full array. Not not yeah. feed horn, but the like the liquid array. Yeah. Okay. So that's the chip. That's the CCD array with and it's not a CCD, but uh the it, that's full of those plus signs and those yeah. plus signs are what detect the radio frequencies. Yes. And that is what generates your image, Hans Milling. So there you go. And this is awesome. So presumably what I just said about a nebula, which I wish I hadn't said, but I did anyway. So we'll follow along with the example. You're looking at an extended object with this. Each pixel might pick up varying brightnesses in the millimeter wavelength and yeah. you get a picture. Exactly. And this is um, how many? Is that it? 4,012 pixels? I think it's back down to 4,006, but it's on the order of 4,000 pixels. And what's, is there a, in, in light, in, in, in CCD world where you've got, you know, you got to worry about the band gap of silicon and stuff to create a, mm -hmm. a an electron. Is there right. a quantum efficiency uh, associated with these or is it pretty much all the light that falls on it gets recorded? There's a quantum efficiency, but I can't remember it offhand. There's a really good paper that was written by the uh, PI at NIST. Um, but these actually work using superconductivity. And so 
they absorb the light and it breaks apart uh, the charge carriers in the superconductor called a Cooper pair. And so that's how these ones work. Are these superconductors so, cooled? Yes. Okay. So that was my first year project was actually building the uh, bus bar system to cool down these detectors. So uh, the inside of Toltec, where the detectors live, actually gets colder than space itself. It gets all the way down to a toasty 100 millikelvin. 100 millikelvin? Yep. <laughs> wow, that's colder than JWST is going to be when it launches. Yeah. That's really cold. It is very cold. How do you, get, and, do you use liquid helium, or what do you use to get that cold? So if you, let's see, I'm trying to think of a good picture. Um, I guess bus bars, O2 bus bars might be a good picture for this. Okay, uh, I've got it up. So we use something called a dilution refrigerator. Um, it uses helium, but it uses a mixture of helium-3 and helium-4. And so it does this really neat trick where it evaporates helium-3 from the surface of a mixture of helium-3 and helium-4 to carry away heat from our system. And so if you look in the back, uh, our refrigerator is that white tube that some of my coworkers are working on. And the gold uh, that you see towards the foreground are the bus bars that carry the heat away from the detectors around the entire system. And how long does it take to, I'm, I'm thinking back, I, I know, I don't know how far I can take this comparison, but when I think about a, a light CCD chip, I think about readout times and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. are, are the readout, does it take a while to read out 4,000 pixels? Or um, is it pretty so instantaneous? What's actually pretty neat is that uh, this technology, the kinetic inductance detectors, they can couple really easily to transmission lines. So you can have 500 detectors on one transmission line. So for the 1.1 millimeter band, for example, we only have seven transmission lines for 4,000 detectors. And so those are handled by seven separate computers. And so readout should be pretty fast, but I think David can probably speak a little more to that. He's been working a little more on the pipeline. David, is that true? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm working slightly on the on the Toltec uh, pipeline. So basically, what we record, uh, each, as as Nat was saying, each each, each detector has a different uh, characteristic frequency. So you basically add up all those frequencies, and then you bring it out them of the cold parts of the of the instruments. And then in electronics and really uh, fast electronics, you filter a specific section of in frequency. That's how you regain the information of every every each uh, and one of these detectors. So basically, it's just pulling. Uh, you're like tuning your radio. You're tuning your uh, your. Uh, your code to analyze the first detector, then you switch the frequency, you tune to the next detector and so on. And that's how you transfer from a single uh, uh, transmission line to thousands or hundreds of time streams of different positions in the sky. Okay. Well, I want to move a little bit to the science because I'm running out of time and I want to talk about what you can do with this stuff. Now, when I was in college, it wasn't Accident. I didn't accidentally stumble on physics like uh, Nat did. I love that story, by the way. I, I'm like, I accidentally took a physics course. I'm gonna have to remember that. Um, but uh, the uh, back when I was studying all of this stuff, the all my instructors would say the future of astronomy. This is like the mid. 90s, early 2000s, or the late 90s, early 2000s, and they would say the future of astronomy is in the infrared because that's where we haven't looked far that much of, and and all of the really interesting things are really far away, and they've redshifted. The distant galaxies have all redshifted into the infrared, and that's where they all are. And detectors had just started being sensitive to the infrared. They could build Mercad Telluride chips, and and you know the infrared was was starting to open up, albeit in space, because not a lot of places on the ground could do it. What? But it seems to me now, with Alma coming online, and the large millimeter telescope that you guys are a part of that radio astronomy seems to be really making a contribution 
not like the fuzzy images we used to see back in the day, you know, of, of like a pulsar or something, but these are, we're getting really high definition radio uh, data now. So what kind of science does that open up for us that perhaps wasn't open, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Well, uh, if you bring up the, uh, the slide six, LMT slide six science. Slide six? Yeah. Let me find slide six. I thought these were in order, but they are not. Uh, Let's see. Ah, there it is. Okay, I've got it up now. Sorry it took so long. Okay, slide six is up. So uh, basically what we are observing uh, with the LMT is, uh, or in the detectors like NAT is building, is the continuum emission from dusty star formation regions. Those star formations are cold, there are a few Kelvins in temperature. Uh, they are usually heated uh, by uh, massive stars. And they, the massive stars produce a lot of uh, ultraviolet and uh, optical light, and it's absorbed by the gas and dust surrounding these, these regions. And then is radiated in infrared and millimeter wavelengths. So we have the opportunity to basically uh, if you see uh, down to the to the right, you will see an image from the EHT uh, optical and near infrared uh, camera, and you will see this is a really common object. This is a horse head nebula, and basically you can see that there is not much information of inside these uh, dusty regions or uh, star formation regions that you can retrieve from this kind. Uh, of images, but if you go to uh, to the millimeter wavelength, particularly with Aztec, which is the previous camera of uh, for Toltec or the uh, the previous technology camera, you can see inside these star formation regions, and basically the levels of brightness are indication of how much gas is being converted into stars. So. What you want to, to, to analyze is how the structure uh, formation, the, the galaxies, the stars, the galaxy clusters are formed with the, uh, with, the, with the cosmic time. And the millimeter wavelength observation provide a unique tool to trace these uh, kind of phenomena because you are able to go basically up to redshift uh, 10 or back to the, the to the down of uh, of a star formation and basically you can see objects provided that they have some kind of dust blocking this emission from stars you can see those objects really really far away and you can trace how the universe started to uh, create more and more structure in more uh, complicated and massive ways and also uh, uh, another kind of detectors we have, they're not able to produce uh, only images, but also analyze the light spectrum of, of, this, uh, of these objects. And then you can derive these low energy uh, molecular transitions that usually are not available in other, in other kind of, uh, of uh, an optical uh, telescope, just because the, the light that these stars produce is able to break down these molecules. So in the millimeter, you have the ability to trace uh, very complex molecules uh, like organic uh, uh, tracers uh, and particles that basically made up us as life forms. So that's the ability we have. Uh, and if you can bring up the next slide, uh, the uh, slide seven, LMT slide seven. Okay, it's up. So you can see that uh, this is all the kind of objects we we, we have. We, we can observe. We have dust grains in the in the uh, leftmost uh, section. You can observe comets or asteroids just just to see uh, characterize the light curves and see which molecules are being able to survive in the tails of comets. You can look out for debris disk or 
traces of other planetary systems in, uh, in another stars. As I was saying, you can also trace uh, uh, the structure formation and the, and, the, and the star formation rate of the universe in basically our galaxy or in a really, really far away galaxy. And you are not limited to that. You can also look to the CMB and isotropies that, like, like uh, Nat was saying, the Sinjet-Sadovich effect is one that is basically providing you a tool to trace the most massive structures in the universe, the galaxy clusters. These are basically uh, 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 the metropoly of the galaxies, just concentrations of thousands of galaxies in really, really small volume. So this is all the science uh, we can do with the, with the LMT and its different instruments. Wow, look at that. That's amazing. So in the lower right, where you've got the CMB, uh, right next to it is a radio image. Is that right? Of the same? Right to uh, right to next to it is a simulation of the of a set of galaxy clusters, and you are seeing basically what uh, Toltec will see in 1.1 millimeter if it is what if it will do a survey. Uh, okay. Around around some specific. Region. Okay, I, I want to go back to slide six for just a minute. This is beautiful, by the way. This is this is a beautiful example, and it sort of dovetails with what I was talking about just a while ago about nebulae. Here you've got the Horsehead Nebula, a nebula that is lit up from behind, and from there inside. are huh? It is lit up from inside. Well, okay, from inside, uh, but it is illuminated from. Uh, it's not letting off light itself. It's illuminated from inside or behind and backlit. The uh, and 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 you can see it in infrared and optical, as you can see in the in the in the left panel. Uh, and then there it is in radio wavelengths at one point one millimeters, and that is where the stars are, right? Yep. And That's so you can see directly and imagine if we had a, a, a more higher resolution image. I mean, it's just getting better all the time. Nat, can you see this picture? Are you looking at slide yeah. six? Okay. What this is Aztec. What will Toltec do that's different than this? So Toltec is going to have a higher resolution, but more importantly, it can map out this image a lot faster than Aztec could. Okay. So readout time will be a lot quicker. Yeah. Okay, and there you go, right there. That's it. To me, that is the that is the that is the money shot. That's huge because that it tells you a lot right there uh, in in terms of where the stars are, where exactly what where the star formation is. Uh, presumably, you could do something like this with the Orion Nebula too, couldn't you, David? And see, yeah, you you, you can do stars. this. I mean, the other advantage of Toltec is that it is able to map larger areas. Than okay. Aztec, so it has. We quantify this with a number called the mapping speed. So, mm -hmm. uh, Toltec is going to be, if I recall correctly, and that can correct me, is thirty times faster that than Aztec. And why is and, that, why is a faster readout so so great? I mean, just more data. So the, there are there are there are. Uh, first of all, it has. Uh, lot more detectors. Aztec has only 144 uh, bolometers. So it's a, it's a really small array. And Toltec has 4,000. Yeah, yeah, it's 1,000 and it's three different wavelengths. Uh, and Aztec is just a, a single one. Okay. Uh, moreover, Aztec was used as a first light instrument when we have only the inner 32 meters of reflective surface. So its resolution and and collective power was smaller than Toltec, which is going to be coupled to the full 50-meter telescope. And then it will be able to gather more light and be more sensitive to this kind of, of emission. Okay. All right. Um, well, I mean, I got to get to a quick question here from Upcycle Electronics. Uh, and maybe this is a question for you, Nat. I don't know. what What's the iterative process for developing telescope hardware um, like new sensors and, and hardware, the iterative process for developing telescope hardware. Um, <laughs> you, you, you think um, you get, I, I, I think I understand it, but I'll give you a shot. Go ahead. Yeah, I think what they're trying to get at is how do you start from maybe just an idea and work your way up? Um, so I came into this project uh, last year and they had kind of been working on it 
for a year before I got here for the building and design aspects, but even the concept of it went back to when they had Aztec. And so I think everything's kind of circular. We kind of build on old technologies and try and improve and iterate on those. Um, we knew what Aztec's capabilities were with the 32-meter LMT, and now with the 50-meter LMT, we can, you know, improve on the images we had taken with Aztec and put on a camera that can really capture the full abilities of the LMT now. And so I think, you know, starting with also some just large goals on what you even want image. Um, I think Toltec's going to be really cool because yeah. we're doing public surveys uh, that the data is going to be publicly released and they're going to be in four kind of different astronomy themes. And so there's kind of something for everyone there. Um, and, you know, well, that, okay, let's, let's drill down on that a little bit. Where are these data going to live? Are they going to be on a, on a portal somewhere people can get access yeah. to? They're going to be uh, through the Toltec website, I believe, um, but they will be publicly posted after, uh, shortly after they're collected, I believe. And when you say it's going to be themed, it's going to be like, what, you're going to look at nebulae or, or galaxies? Or uh, you, so you... right now there are four themes that have been defined by the public. And so two of them are galactic based. So there's one called clouds to cores and another called fields and filaments. And so clouds to cores is looking at star formation in local clouds. Um, and then fields and filaments looks at magnetic fields in these filamentary structures we see within clouds. Um, and then the two that I'm mostly interested in are the extragalactic, uh, the really far away stuff. Uh, we're doing one that's called a wide large scale structure survey and then another that's an ultra deep survey. And so um, they're going, going to try and get more back at the formation and evolution of structure in the universe like David was talking about. Okay, cool. Well, guys, um, we are, <laughs> it always goes fast. I always think, you know, if we ever, you know, if we, every time we do a hangout, I always say, well, if we, you know, we'll just stop if we run out of things to talk about. We've never, ever, ever done that once yet. So uh, I want to, th I want to thank you guys so much for taking time out to uh, talk with us about the Large Millimeter Telescope. My guests today were Nat Degree, Nat Denigris. She is at the University of Massachusetts at uh, Amherst. And also David Sanchez, who's currently down in Mexico at the facility, or at least at the, um, the uh, uh, what'd you call it? The, um, the base camp. Base camp. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, doing some observations right now on star formation at the large at the large millimeter telescope. So thank you guys so much. Real, real briefly, can you tell me, okay, in addition to, you know, the Toltec coming out on, online, What's the future of LMT? Is it gonna? Is there? Is it just gonna continue operating? Are you gonna expand it? Are there improvements coming? What's in, what's what's in store for the Large Millimeter Telescope? Well, right now we are uh, basically uh, receiving a bunch of new instruments to basically have a more wavelength survey by 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 the LMT. We have the receiver I was working last night is called Sequoia, which is a three millimeter. Uh, uh, spectrographer. Uh, we have B4R, which is a collaboration with uh, Japan, which uh, is a uh, two millimeter uh, wavelength spectrograph. And both of those can take image and spectrum at the same time. So these are really different uh, detectors from what Nat was uh, describing. These are heterodyne detectors. And we are planning to have uh, more uh, instruments like SuperSpec and then try to uh, improve our surface, uh, increase the accuracy of the surface to go to sublimeter uh, wavelengths uh, as 850 microns and probably beyond because the the site the site is able to 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 make these observations. Did you say uh, below eight eight hundred uh, well, nanometers? Well, provided that you can. Uh, uh, well, I didn't talk about this, but our surface is basically segmented in. Right, 188 uh, segments, and provided you can set those in the right way, and you have this uh, lambda over 20 accuracy, down to to other wavelengths. So our next target is the is increase our efficiency to 850 microns, and then with that we will be able to analyze and consider uh, that if we can go below that. 
Okay. There are other ideas right now, and this is also coming back to this iterative uh, uh, process of science. We are now having ideas on how to increase the field of view, the, the instantaneous field of view of the telescope using some adaptive optic te techniques just to increase how much area we can serve with, with, the, with the LMT or modifying the secondary mirror. That's all the things we are beginning to think for the next stages of the, of the LMT. All right. Well, that's excellent. Okay, guys. Well, lots to look forward to. Thank you again for taking time out uh, to talk with us. I want to thank all of you guys for watching. Uh, next week, I've got uh, guys from Keck on. We're going to talk about a, a project called Penoptes, I think is how you pronounce it, but it is a citizen science initiative that allows you to take data in your backyard, submit it to Keck, and they will run an algorithm uh, for exoplanet light curves. So this is a chance for you to get started uh, in helping helping to confirm exoplanets and everything else. So you want to check that out. That's next week. Uh, the two, two astronomers from Keck Observatory, one from Keck, one from Subaru, uh, will be talking about their project and how you can get involved. That's next week. And I will see you guys then. On behalf of my guests, I want to thank you so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up.